Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank for this opportunity we have to come before you and to worship you and, and study your word. We ask that you will show us what you would want us to see from these studies today. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're starting the book of 1 Thessalonians today. It's a book written by Paul somewhere around 50 A.D. Uh, they're not exactly sure. The recipients of it was the Thessalonians, uh, the church at Thessalonica. Uh, that was the church that was started by Paul during his third journey in, in the book of Acts, chapter 17. And he started this, started this church. Uh, we know that Timothy was sent to this church to go check it out to see how they were doing because one thing we know about the story in, in Acts is they were chased out pretty quick. It talks about going to the synagogue on two Sabbaths and then we don't know if he just stopped going to the synagogue because the Jews ignored him or if he was just irritated them so much that they chased him out of town. But he stayed there long enough to get some believers started. <laughs> And got a church started, and in uh, the third chapter of this book, Timothy, uh, Timothy was sent to send them encouragement. And uh, in the sixth chapter of the book, it tells us that Timothy gave him a glowing report. This church is healthy, this church is doing really well. And so the theme of this book is, it's a personal letter to Paul. He's, he's praising them for the most part. Right, this is one of the few letters where he's not chastisement doesn't mean he doesn't do any chastisement or correction or exhortation but for the most part in this book he's saying I'm glad to hear what you're going I'm, and you know you're doing really well you know and it's you know thank God for his grace and his mercy and all all of these things he does just a little bit of doctrinal study uh, but he mostly commends them this is a very personal loving letter from Paul um, the outline of the book is in chapter one he commends the church Chapter 2, he remembers, he remembers his, his times that he had with them. Uh, and he does it fondly. When we get to chapter 2, it's pretty much fondness that he remembers them with. And in chapter 3, he's recounting Timothy's report. Chapter 4, the first part of it, he exhorts the church. In the second half of 4, all the way through most of chapter 5, it talks about the future. This is where we have one of our strongest verses on the, on the rapture. Uh, the fact that the, that we have a home in heaven, that we will be spending time in heaven. So four and five are those encouragement verses that you have a have a home and a future. The last part of uh, chapter five is a few exhortations to actual duties and works. He's trying to encourage them as good as they're doing. He's telling them, don't sit on your laurels, get out and do some work. Um, and then he closes it with his benediction. So that's where we are with this, uh, this book. It's a fairly simple outline, and we will start into it. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of, Thessal of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you in peace from our God from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the sight of God and our, and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel 
came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, in much assurance as we know what manner of men you were, were among, we were among you for your sake. We, and you became followers of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that we were in samples unto all that believed in Macedonia and Achaia, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Archaea, but also every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show us what manner of entering we had unto you, and how you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So this chapter starts out with greetings, as all of Paul's letters do. He identifies, hi, this is Paul. Now one thing, one thing we want to say in, in the letters of that time, you started out with who was writing the letter. All right, We start out with who are we addressing it to, but in their day it's hi, me, and whoever else is here to because of the way the mail system you know, worked. They didn't have addressed letters with a return envelope on the outside. But it was not really unknown because how did I get my mail to you? You tell me you're going to Thessalon uh, Thessalonica. I write a letter and say, would you deliver this to, <laughs> to whoever it's delivered and probably pay you a little bit for your trouble of going, going out of your way. Uh, so as soon as you give it, here, here's a letter from. <laughs> But the process was to say, this is so-and-so, all right? And if you've ever watched any of the old Monarchs movies, it's, um, you know, King so-and-so, ruler of such-and-such -such place, the master of, the winner of, the, the, you know, they give you this long title, two, <laughs> all right? Basically, this is what, what we're looking at. So it's Paul and Silvanus, which is another name for Silas. All right, and Silas was with Paul on his third trip, and Timothy, or, or to, to Timotheus, which is Timothy. And Timothy was the much-loved younger man that Saul took under his arm. In the book of Timothy, when we studied that, we talked about how he had been raised up by a godly mother. He had a Greek for a father, so he had kind of a mixed family. He wasn't being raised up completely, but he was being raised as a Jew. And so Timothy was brought under the arm of Paul and said, I'm going to take you. And he calls him his son. And he's not literally his son, but he treats him in every way as if he's my son. And, and gets into him in, in the book of Timothy. He says, don't let anybody despise your youth because he, Timothy was the one he would leave a lot of times behind, take care of a church, get it started, get a... Get a man trained to be the, you know, get the man trained to be the pastor, get some deacons, get the church up and running, and then he'd go off to find Paul. All right? So he, he was Paul's right-hand man. Silas is another one that he leaves. We know that he does this with Titus. Paul has this group of people that he just leaves behind and says, okay, we've got this church well underway, and I'm sure that Paul said, I think he's going to make a good, good pastor. He'll make some, you know, I'm sure he made points to them and said, you work with those people directly. Come and join me as soon as you can. And so these three, he's actually got his top three that are going around with him and saying, 
we're all here. We, we're writing this letter to the church of the Thessalonians. All right? And this is something that is very interesting. When we look at the New Testament, we know that churches met in homes. But they're always identified as the church of whatever town that they're in. And it's kind of interesting because we know that most of those people, even if you had a big home, you didn't have enough people, room for thousands of people. But they were all under one umbrella for their church. Paul started the church. He'd put a pastor in there, and then they would have smaller groups of churches. Um, So he says, to the church, the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this picture. He says, you are in God. You are in Jesus Christ. This is something that when he was writing this stuff, we use this term pretty simple in, in our day because we've heard it. Paul said it all the time. And, but you know, in that day, they didn't really believe that God would be in you, that God, that God would dwell in you. He would come upon you. Uh, and that was the way the Jews looked at it. I don't think there was much difference between coming on or coming in. But they kind of looked at it as God came on you and did mighty things. And Paul says, God is actually living in you. And there's certain verses in the Old Testament that indicate that God lived in them. And I kind of believe that this is not necessarily a different way of looking. There's a lot of people who make a big deal out of this. In the Old Testament, God just came upon people. In the New Testament, God came and lived in them. I don't think there's that much difference. I think it's the way the Jews looked at it. And the, and the people, and then the way the Christians said that we now have a personal God, and we, we changed the way we looked at God. All right? God didn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we, with the coming of Jesus, looked at God different. He, he told the disciples to pray, Our Father. That was not something the Jews, Jews did. Now, there are pictures of him doing it. It was not something that was totally brand new. But they did not think of God as Father. And a lot of Christians don't really think of God as Father. They think of him as the big man upstairs looking to beat me over the head when I do something wrong, and he doesn't love me, doesn't care about me. And that's not the attitude that was brought in by Christ. He dwells in us. He wants to be our friend. Now, having said that, we also want to be careful that we don't get so idea, well, Jesus is my big buddy, you know, uh, you know, yes, he is on one side, but he's still God. And he still needs to be submitted to. And this is where we kind of have to draw a fine line. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit all dwell in us and love us and care for us and want to be friends with us, but they are still God, or he is still God, <laughs> the Trinity one. And so he, he said, you guys have God in you. And I love it when I see somebody make that decision that they understand God is in them and they're making decisions to walk with him in a mighty way. And there's so many lives in our church that are being changed as people decide to walk with him and let him be living in them and not just living in them because it's one thing some people kind of have Jesus living in them and they put him off in the guest bedroom in the back of their heart and they let him out once in a while when they need something. And he's saying, no, that's not what I am. I'm not your big sugar daddy to give you your, your gifts. I am the one who's supposed to be sitting on the throne of your heart. And you now listen to me. 
And when we get to that point and we do that, that's when power comes into our life. That is when we have the ability to be victorious in our life. Because he is sitting on the throne and he says, okay, now you're listening to the right person. You're not here trying to fight with me over the throne. And I do know there's a lot of people who try to put him in the back bedroom and close the door and triple lock it so you're only going to come out when I tell you to come out. You know, they can't put him back there, but you know, they tried to, you know, we, we talk to people all the time like that. And he's praised, Paul is praising them. He says, you've got God living in you. And he says, grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Not uh, getting everything you, you don't deserve. I love this. This is how Paul starts so many of his letters. Grace to you. Grace to you. If more Christians would really understand that God wants to give us grace, we would be more powerful and more strong. Because when we're looking at, okay, how, much, how mad is, is he at me? You know, is he waiting there to bop me over the head with a big hammer because I've been... I haven't done everything right, and he's just standing there ready to love us. And Paul's letters always start with grace, with grace. And I've shared over and over again, if I'm going to err on the, on the side of be, on, on any, being wrong or anything, I want to err on the side of grace. I have seen more lives changed by grace than by laws. When people put a bunch of laws on people, they, they can't keep them. Makes them feel bad when they can't keep them. And they end up not growing in Christ because all they are is worried about how, God, how mad God is at me for breaking all these laws. And they don't realize Jesus died on the cross for all those laws that you can't keep. You know, and this is why grace is important. And as Paul said, it doesn't mean that I go out and sin so that I can have lots and lots of grace. I have all the grace I get right from the beginning because that's who God is. He wants to give me grace, and Jesus died for my sins so that he can give me grace. And I don't have to go out and do wrong things to get grace. He says, oh, because grace is getting everything we don't deserve. All the riches of God are ours because of grace. And that is an acronym. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, the acronym for grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. All right. Now, it's, it's only the tip of what grace is, but it really is true. Everything that God has belongs to me because Jesus died for me, and I accepted that gift. Therefore, I have God's riches. And if we can just grab hold of that, can you understand the power that that brings into your life when you're not worried about being beat up by God? You, know, you just grab hold of his grace. Uh, I share with people... You know, kids are not afraid of computers. Why are they not afraid of computers? They're not afraid of breaking them. Most adults get on a computer and they're afraid of breaking the things, so they're very timid. They never get the full power. They rarely never. You know, they rarely get the full power of the computer because they're so afraid of doing something that's going to break the computer. The analogy I'm bringing to us is we need to come to God more like the child. Not afraid of breaking my relationship with God. I'm coming to him and saying, God, you are so great. I, I love you so much and, and, and take all that he's going to give us. Not coming into him with our hat in our hand, shivering with, with fear that he's going to say no. 
Because even if he says no, with, after he's given us so much, he might come to a place where he says, no, you've got enough for now. Because he doesn't want to spoil us. But he wants to give grace. He's not up there with a baseball bat waiting to hit us over the head or lightning bolts or whatever picture you want to you want a picture of him. And peace. Now this word for peace is very beautiful. Peace is really the idea of somebody who is perfectly at comfort with God and not afraid of what God's sending their way. All right? Just as in the Hebrew, peace has a very strong word. It is it is physical peace, it's spiritual peace, it's peace with my fellow, fellow believers. Why? Because I know God has my home in place. And the greatest thing we can know when we're saved, we have a home in heaven. No matter what happens in this life, we have a home in heaven. And remember, Paul told, told, the, told the churches, I'm content wherein I have, I've learned to be content, because what are these light afflictions compared to heaven? And we've shared over and over, you know, Paul's light afflictions were, were really light stuff, being basically tarred and feathered, chased out of towns, beat, uh, stoned, you know, shipwrecked, sick. <laughs> you know, those, those things he called light afflictions. And how many times do non-light afflictions stop us from serving God? Well, you know, God, these people might say mean things to me if I talk about you. Yeah. Go back to the Bible and say light afflictions. Mean things are not, are not a big deal. Now, there will come a time, probably very soon with the way things are looking, that we may actually have to face more like Paul did. Being beat, being imprisoned, facing dire consequences. And then hopefully we'll still agree with Paul. These light afflictions are nothing compared to heaven. And we want to keep that in mind. And he says, all of this comes from, your grace and your peace comes from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So all the good that we have comes from them. All the seemingly bad that comes our way comes from them. And note, I, keep, I love to say seemingly bad because God has a reason for it. And he's trying to grow us through, our, through those bad times. And if we don't react correctly, then they're hard. Then they become trials and tribulations and, and beat us up. If we have our eyes focused on him and we're going, okay, God, I'm just going to hold on because you've promised good and we stay hidden in him, we t they turn out to be great blessings. But even the trial and tribulation will become a blessing in the long run. All things work together for good. So even that thing that knocks us down, kicks us around because we didn't have the right attitude to begin with, God will use it to strengthen us later on. And say, okay, well, you, you didn't make it this time. Learn from your lessons. Let's give you the lesson over again. And God keeps giving us the same lesson over and over and over again until we pass it. Not necessarily with the same exact thing, but it's the same lesson. He's teaching you to be more loving. You'll keep having to take the test on, on with that loving person. If he's teaching you to be forgiving, you're going to have that same, you're going to have to need to forgive. And it will grow and grow as you get better at it. He's teaching you to be more de devoted to him. He's going to put you in places where you have to work on your devotion. Now, whatever it is he's teaching you to do, you have to keep taking the same test until you pass it. God doesn't say, okay, you failed, you failed third grade, but you know, hey, we can't hold you back, so we're going to put you into fourth grade. 
He says, you get to stay in third grade until you pass my test. And, and I use something we can actually you know, think of. It's not literally that, but that kind of idea. You stay there until you pass the test. And you may be in fifth grade in one subject, in college in another, on another area, and in preschool in another area. You know, and God works with you in each of those areas at where you're at and walks with you. And then Paul goes, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing the works of faith, the labor of love, the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of, a, of God and our Father. So he says he's remembering them. I can't imagine, when you read through all the epistles, and we don't have all of Paul's letters, how long his prayer list was and how long it took him to make it through the prayer list because I don't think he's lying to the people. We always, we're always praying for you. He told the Philippians, I'm always praying for you. Over and over these groups, he said, I'm praying for you. And I, he might have had a literal parchment with a long list of, of churches and people in those churches and praying for them. He may have just gone back through and said, okay, on the first trip we went here. Oh, yes, God, those people. Then we went here. Oh, man, God, yes, they're, they're, they're really having a hard time. You know, and he's just recounting all of these events and praying for these people and lifting them up. And, you know, the question on that for us is, do we really think of our prayer list and make a personal prayer list? We have a prayer list in the church, and that's good. It's really good. People have asked for prayer. But, you know, it's a big difference. It's like we moved from the idea of all these 80-some people on our prayer list, and that's good. We want to keep praying for them. But my encouragement to the church was, who is the one or two people that you're really lifting up to see God move in? Because you're going to pray for those individuals a lot more and a lot more fervently than 88 people, most of whom you don't know. And we, we, it's, it's good. We read them. We should go through that list. And even when we have our times and I sit down with them, there's certain ones I say, God, I don't know who these, these 10 people are. Somebody does bring somebody in and I'll get somebody, God, I know this person. So even when I'm praying down that list of 88, there's some that are just going to kind of cursory, God, you know, you know how to reach this person. There, there's other people that's, God, I know this person. They need you so much and there's a fervency in it. And we need to have that kind of prayer. We need to have our own list of people that we are praying for and lifting up before the Father that we personally care about. It's one thing to go through prayer lists of, you know, just whoever. And God's going to touch us. God will answer those prayers. I don't want to belittle those prayers. But it's a bigger difference when it's somebody I know and I love and I care for and I pray for them. And Paul's saying, I remember all of you and I make mention of you. And Paul, remember, Paul did three missionary trips. He's got lots of people that he remembers. So every time he thinks about Thessalonians, he's going to pray for the church in general. He's going to think about who's put in charge of that church as a pastor. And he's going to have all kinds of people go, God, I remember. I remember. I remember this person, this person, this person. This person, you know, put me up in a house for, for a while. This person gave me gifts. This person, you know, did this for me. God bless them and lift them up. God, you, you know, this person, he chased me out of town, but bless him anyway. You know, bring him to you. He's remembering all of these things, and he's praying for them. And then he says, remembering or recalling without ceasing your work of faith. 
Now this is something that is brought up over and over in the scriptures. Our faith should have feet on it and hands. All right? I can't say, well, God, I really believe in you and sit on my butt all day and not, not read his Bible or talk to people or share the gospel or do something. All right? Our faith must have action with it. Otherwise, it's not really faith. I could say all day, I believe these chairs in this room are going to hold me up and then not sit down in them. Even though I go, I'm sure that chair can hold me, but I'm just not going to sit down in it. What am I saying? I don't have faith in that chair. Or I'm not tired, but if I keep doing it every single time I come in, I'm basically saying, I don't think, that, I don't think that's true. And this is where James comes along and says, you know, he doesn't say you can't have faith without works. But he says, show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my, work, my faith by my works. In other words, he's saying, you really can't prove you've got faith, and we can't know that, we're going, that we have it. You know, it's one thing to say, I have an experience. But you know, experiences don't mean that we're saved. There are lots of people who get excited about God. The sower and the seed is that. Some fell on the rocks and was immediately eaten by the, by the enemy and taken away. Some fell in the rocks, and it started to grow. All the seed was good seed. Started to grow, but it, when the hard times came, they go, ah, it's, there's nothing there, and it was taken away. Others fell among the thorns, and that was a little more close to it. At least sprung up, but it was overcome by the, work, by the world. Those, all three of those were not saved. Even though the word germinated in two of them, it did not bring life. And so only one, the one that ends up in the fertile field and grows up and produces was the one that got saved. And just as they say, I see your faith by the works that you're do- doing. And Paul's looking at him saying, you guys are doing great works. He's going to talk about a few of those works as we go further in. And he goes, your labor of love. I love this because when we are truly in love with God and s- serving him, all the work we do is because he's, he's on the throne and he's crucifying the flesh is just a labor of love. I've had plenty of things that I love what I'm doing so much that it's not work. And I actually have worked harder at some of those than I have in the jobs where I've had to get paid. But it was just one of those things I enjoyed and it was fun and, and worked hard. And Paul's saying, I know how much you're enjoying what you're doing. And, you know, we've all been there where we just drudgery. And hopefully you've all been someplace where it has been a little more fun. This is just a fun place to be doing, you know, to be serving. Hopefully Christianity is one of those, God, I am serving you because I love you. If I'm reading my Bible, oh man, I gotta just I gotta go through and read my Bible today. Oh no, God, you really want me to pray for a while, God? Longer than five minutes? <laughs> God, really? God, you want me to open my mouth and talk to that person about you? And everything is a fight between you and God. You have to then look and say, do I really know him? I am so in love with God that I want to serve him. Am I doing it perfect all the time? Absolutely not. I wish I was. But most of it is, God, I just love coming. I love serving. I love being the pastor of this church and being able to come and teach and minister to people and, and visit people and talk to people and see people grow. And put in more, almost as much hours as I do for the job that pays the bills as I get for here. You know, but 
is that our attitude, that we love God so much that it is a labor of love? Does that mean we're going to like every part of every bit of thing that God does? No, it's a labor. There are times when even no matter how much you like what you're doing, there's times when it is a labor. But I really think the love part needs to be more important than the labor. If it's all labor and no love, then I'm going to have to analyze, where am I with God? What's wrong with me? Now, that doesn't mean I'm not saved. It could mean that I'm just being disobedient. If you know that God has told you to do something and you refuse to do it, it gets very hard to read the Bible. It gets very hard to pray because every time you do both, God says, uh, well, you're going to do what I told you to do. (laughs) Got to go do something else. God, would you just leave me alone about that? Yeah, and I've heard this over and over, people being called to be a missionary, you know, praying about a husband or a wife and knowing that who God wants them and not wanting it because, because they're going to be real spiritual. They're not going to get married. And I've seen that a lot when I was in Bible college. There was a lot of guys that just weren't going to get married. They were going to be spiritual. They weren't going to get married. And, and they would meet their, their uh, wife and they would go, nope, not going to do it, not going to do it. And you'd watch them go through a very hard time where God's not listening, they're not... You know, we're apparently not listening and things are getting hard and they finally give up and do what God says and God blesses. So this is something that God says. When you know what you're supposed to do, go and do it. And the example that I use from the Bible is Abraham. Abraham and Ur of Chaldees. Abraham, leave your family, you know, leave, leave all your family and go to the land that I'm telling you. Sure, God, I'll leave, I'll leave my family. He takes... He takes Lot, his wife, and his, and his uh, father. But he leaves her of Chaldees. He goes half obedient to God. He gets to Haran and stops. And most people believe that he stopped for about 20 years. And during that time, there's nothing in there that says God talked to him during that 20 years in Haran. It wasn't even, Abraham, get going with what I told you to do. It was, I told you what to do. You haven't done it. Now you just, I'm going to wait for you to do what I've told you to do. I've been there in my, in my life where I know what God wants me to do and I just don't want to do it and everything seems to come to a standstill. Everything, everything spiritual comes to a standstill. And bad things seem to be happening <laughs> because God is saying, uh, let's get you out of what you're doing. Abraham leaves Ur of Chaldean. He's still not 100% obedient. His, his dad died, so he takes his nephew and his wife and the rest of his possessions. And God immediately talks to him and says, okay, fine, now let's go, let's go into this land that you're supposed to go into. And that is exactly what happens with us when we decide to be obedient to what God has told us to be doing. We go right back into fellowship with him. And this is the great thing about God. God isn't standing up there and saying, okay, will you fill, uh, all right, when you, when you have been in, repent, in a repented attitude for, for six months, we will, we will get back into fellowship. No, he is waiting for us to repent and step forward in what we are, are to do. And he's right there. Even before we can get the repentance words out, he's there just as the prodigal son's dad was. Dad, I sinned against you. Oh, son, thank you as he wraps his arms around him. My son is back. My son is alive. God is waiting for us to just turn to him and be obedient. 
And then he grabs hold of us before we can even say, God, I am so sorry I did it, because he knows in our heart that we're already sorry because we've become obedient. And Paul is saying this labor of love, and then he goes, and the patience of hope. Patience of hope. Hope is a confidence, confident assurance that something is going to happen. All right? In the, in the Bible, when we read the word hope, it's not a if maybe I hope that something else, something might happen. It is God has made a promise. It's going to happen, and I am confidently assured of what is going to happen. This is the beauty for us as Christians. Well, you know, I hope God is going to take me to heaven. No. My hope is that because of what Jesus Christ did for me, for me on the cross, I am going to heaven, and it's not even a hope. It's a hope only because I haven't seen it, but it is a confident hope because of what Jesus Christ did for me. And Paul is bringing that up to them. You have a strong hope that in God. You have your assurance. You have turned away from these idols, and God is everything to you. And this is the beauty of it. When we read scripture, we need to believe what it says. And I know this group does. I mean, it's not, you know, but it is so important. We read scripture and we believe it. Doesn't matter what the world says. Doesn't matter what the latest archaeological or scientific discovery is. We go, God, your word is true. And eventually it always proves out to be true. You know, we hear all the time, and, you know, I guess it was about seven years ago, we heard, you know, they have found this little sarcophagus with the name of Jesus on it. And it had bones in it, and it was in Jerusalem, and they were absolutely sure it was Jesus' bones. Well, number one, the name Yeshua, or Jesus, was a very popular name in that, in that, in that place. So just finding a box with the name Jesus did not mean it was him. Uh, and they found out that the dating on the box was the wrong date anyway. So, but you know, it shook a lot of people's confidence. Oh no, they found Jesus' bones. He didn't raise from the dead. We have to be careful that we believe God no matter what. Now, if they can prove something, then we could have to say something. But all this speculation, when Darwin came out and evolution came out in the middle 1800s the church the, the idea had been around for a long time but he really popularized it and tried to wrap it up in science and the church was panicking oh no how do we put this so-called science into the bible because it says god created the heavens and the earth in in six days and and they worked very hard at trying to find millions of years in the bible and they came up with the idea called the gap theory God created the heavens and the earth, and Satan destroyed the first one, and it took millions of years for all that to happen, and then God wiped it out and, and started all over again. Well, that uh, kind of doesn't fit the Bible. It's death and disease are the, because of Adam and Eve, not because of something that happened long before that. So we want to be careful and say, God, you said this, I believe it. Now, the good news is we can also go back and look at the facts, and all the facts always match what he says. So there's not a problem with looking at it. And God says in Isaiah, come now, let us reason together. He wants us to come and he, he does not say, okay, you believe in me, go check your brain at the door and do everything I tell you to do. Unfortunately, there's lots of religions that tell you that. 
Check your do brain at the door, and if you find anything that doesn't make sense, forget about that. Just, just take it in faith and move forward. And God says, let us reason together. And he will prove who he is. He's not afraid of questions. He's not afraid of, God, are you really real out there? You know, he's not afraid of, God, are you really going to take care of me? He's waiting for those kind of prayers to show people that he will take care of them. He will protect them. And we can ask those questions and get answers. I love people who ask those questions. Because I'll show them how science matches what the Bible says with, with great clarity. And, and not a problem at all. We'll show them that there's no contradictions in the Bible. I love that. I want people to come in and say, God, I believe in God, not just because I believe that I believe, but I know what I believe. And this is important because faith isn't just, let me walk off the cliff and hope that I stand up in the air when I walk off the cliff. Well, no, that's not going to happen. You walk off the cliff, you are going to fall. And this is what is very important for us. Our faith has to be in knowledge and understanding. Otherwise, it's not valid. All right? I can believe something all day. I can have faith in something all day. But if it's the wrong thing to have faith in, and I've shared with you, I have no faith in those little catering chairs that can only handle about 150 pounds. Why? Because about three of them have broken underneath me. And I say, at my 300 pounds, I'm not sitting on that chair. If I get cut in half somehow by, by, in my weight, I might think about sitting in one of those chairs again. But until then, no. <laughs> I see a catering chair, I say, no, thank you, I'll stand. <laughs> because I don't have faith in them because it has never been proven to be good. So our faith has to be in the right thing. Otherwise, it is not valuable faith. And this is why we want to be careful when we hear everybody say, well, I, I, I have faith. What do you have faith in? And that's very important to understand, what do I have faith in? Because if I have faith in the wrong things, I'm not going to heaven. Every human being has a measure of faith given to them to be used. Some people put it into idolatry. Wicca, all these things that are against God, and then wonder why they're not getting at peace with God. And God is saying, no, put your faith in me. I'm the one that has the answers for you. I'm the one that has your strength. Put it in me. And then he rewards our faith and gives us more faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more time I spend in God's word, the more time I spend being taught by by pastors and teachers, the stronger my faith is going to be. The more I walk with God and experience, the stronger my faith will be. And to get to the point where you don't have any problem with faith because you go, God, you have met all my needs all, all the time as I've walked through and you have given me blessings and you have given me strength and you have given and protected me. And the longer you walk with him, the more you can have confidence that he's going to take it, take care of you. Because he always does. God never fails his children. We fail him, and he has to discipline us at times, but he does not fail us. We put our trust in him, and he will honor that trust. We say, God, you've said, you said you want to tithe, and we start tithing, and God says, thank you, and he gives us back our, 
gives us back the blessings for the tithing. We go, God, you said open our mouth and, and speak to these people, and we just start learning to open our mouth and speak. We start watching God work. Now, granted, we're not going to be perfect at it when we first start. It's going to take time. But that is why we are newborn babes with God, and we learn to grow with him. All right? And this is something we need to look at our life. Now, if somebody's been walking with God for 60 years and they're still a baby sucking a bottle, there's a problem. All right? They're, they're either stillborn or what, I don't know, but they need to grow up. But when you're a new Christian or getting in a new area of, of training, you don't expect to be able to run around and dance and jump and leap. You're, you're just learning to walk. And just as a baby you know, gets up to walk. What do they do? They get up on their hands and knees and they just rock back and forth for a while. Then they learn if they move their hands and knees, they go someplace. And then they learn that if I stand up, I can go places faster. And then once they stand up, forget it. They start running and jumping and leaping and playing sports and dancing and, and everything. That is us in our spiritual life. We get saved and usually we just start getting up on our knees and rocking. We're not going anywhere. We're just starting. You know, God says, I want you to love this. Okay, God, I love them. <laughs> you know, uh, um, and God says, okay, next step will get you to move your knees and actually get you to, to do something and show them, the, show them their love. Uh, but that is life. That is growing in Christ. We start out as newborn babes and we work into growing with him and learning to walk with him. How do we do it? By practice. I don't know anybody who's ever been good at sports that just walked, just, you know, I'm going to go out and play baseball today, and they grab a bat, ball, and glove, and they're a superstar. All right? No, and no matter how good they are, they still have to learn how to catch and throw. They may learn it quickly. They may have natural skills at it, but they're not able to do pro-level stuff on the very first time they walk on the field. They may be good. And we can do, you know, you might have somebody who's a good cook. They just have great natural talents. They know how to combine things. They're still going to make mistakes. They still have to develop their skills in it. This is us. When we first start witnessing, we're going to fall flat on our face and feel like we wasted our time. And that per God, how that, how's that person ever going to get you from what I said? You know what, though? A lot of times those people actually reach people because they know it's real. If you're willing to get up and do something that's that unpolished, and that stumbling over, and you're still willing to do it, it impresses people. And oftentimes, you're going to save, lead more people to Christ during that period of time than when you've polished up your, you polished up your, your, your gospel message and you have it all shiny and, and you're pitching it like a sales pitch. And we have to be careful that we never let our testimony and the gospel get to be a sales pitch. Because then nobody's listening. It's just a sales pitch. Buy, buy my pens. They're, they're the best pen on the market. They're really, really cheap. You know, uh, if, and if we get to that point with our presentation of, our, of the gospel message, people turn us up. And I'm not saying we're doing it wrong. We've just polished it up and we've said it so many times that we have to be careful that it doesn't become that. And this is something that we're looking at here. And he says, you are patient in the hope of our Lord and Father. And this is when God promises something, it, take it to the bank. 
And this is the beautiful thing. As you're reading God's word and he says, do this. Get out there and do it. Whatever it might be. If he says, I mean, just because you read it, don't, you know, there's need, but he steps and the Holy Spirit says, you need to be doing such and such. Obey. Life is miserable if you don't. Because he's going to keep reminding you every time you open the Bible, every time. You know, I've had times when, when I know that every radio pastor in the, in the, on the radio has gotten together and planned their messages be, with, you know, to, to be speaking to me. Because every one of them talks, of, talks to me about something that God is trying. And usually anymore, if that happens, okay, God, I didn't know that I was fighting you, but okay, I'm, I'm giving up. Let's, let's go. <laughs> but you know, we've been there. We've all been there where we don't really respond to God in a, in a great way, and it takes that little nudging. Somebody will say something. Somebody will do something, and it's that little nudge to get moving. Then he says, all of these good things, he says in verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, knowing here is to know by experience and by sight. Okay, it's not just I know a fact. But he says, I have seen this. I perceive it. I know it to be true. In the, in the Greek, there's two basic words for know. One is to know by experience, and one is to know by just knowledge. All right? Most of us have never met Abraham Lincoln. But most of us believe that Abraham Lincoln lived because we read about him in our history books. We've seen pictures of him. But none of us really know him. Even if you've studied him and, and analyzed his life and read every biography and autobiography and every newspaper article about him, you know a lot about him, but you don't know him. This word here is that you know God, not just know about him. And this is where he makes that transition from you've been studying the word, you've been looking at it, but now you know him by your experience. And this is the beauty. When we know God, nobody's going to convince us that we don't know him. Now, that would be like somebody coming up and saying, well, you've got a husband, a wife, a best friend, or whatever, but you don't know them. You've never met them in your life. Uh, yeah, I, go, I see them every single day. I talk to them. I, you know, I, I have these great times with them. I know them. Nobody's going to convince you that you don't know them. When you truly know Jesus and the, and the Father, it really is, I know that I know that I know, and nobody's going to convince me that I don't know, including Satan with his attacks. Now, he can make me question because he can make things so bad and, or seemingly so bad because God has given him the, the freedom to touch me. But he can't truly get rid of what I know to be true. Job went through a lot. He, he knew that he knew God, but he got to a place where he's questioning, I'm going around, God, did I really know who you are? But he never really got to the place where he said, I don't know God. He questioned how well he knew God. And that's something we might have to do at various points in our life. How well do I know God? Because a lot of times we think we know God and we put him in some box and say, God, uh, this, is your, this is what you do. I can guarantee one thing. If you try to put God in a box, he's going to step out of the box you're trying to put him in. Uh, I saw a little kid one time trying to put a cat in a box. Now, the cat might have gone in the box if he wanted to, but this cat did not want to go in that box. 
and he put him in the box, the cat jumped out. He'd go get the cat, he'd put him back in the box, and he'd jump back out. Run out, you know, he's trying to close the box, trying to push the cat in. Yeah, I mean, think about that's God, and he's not even doing that much. He's just jumping out of the box and saying, you're not putting me in that box. <laughs> All right? God is not going to be boxed in because he is infinite. The one thing we know he can't do, he can't sin. He can't lie. So if you want to put a box around him, make sure it's those, uh, the box on the handful of things he can't do. And that's lie or sin or let somebody into heaven that's not perfect. Other than that, he can do anything he wants. He's God. And he will not sin. Other than that, you can't put a box around God. God, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus did so many different ways of healing. I think if every time he had healed the blind person, in the, if he had healed every blind person in the same way, everybody would go, this is how you heal blind people. And they'd be the ministry of healing the blind Jesus' way. And they'd go, you know, because he goes, whatever, you know, but Jesus did different things. One person he spoke to, spit in one person's eyes. He made a mud pie for another person's eyes. You know, he just spoke to another. I mean, he did a lot of different ways, and I think he did it on purpose so that people wouldn't get, this is the way, this is the way you get healed. And all through the scriptures, we see that. God has this habit of not doing the same thing twice. He may do similar things. He may do things very, very, very similar, but he doesn't do everything the same exact way. Because then we would, he would be predictable, and we go, okay, well, when God, when you start doing this, I'm going to believe that you're moving. And God says, no, we're not going to go there. We're n- I am not that predictable because I am God. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways and always will be, by the way, even when we've walked with God for decades, even if we manage to walk with God for centuries, his thoughts and ways are still going to be higher than ours. And that's as we've drawn closer to him. We get really close to him, and his thoughts are still long, long ways higher than ours. We're still not even close to being connected to his thoughts. And I'm more connected than, you know, than I was, and probably more connected than many people, but I'm still not connected to God directly. Uh, the, the story will go, you know, how far is the gap between sinners and God? And you'll, you know, you'll talk about, you know, who's the best person that you know? And somebody will come up with the best person. Who's the worst person that you can think of? And they just go, okay, they, they're far apart. They're really far apart. Now, how are you compared to God? All right? Okay, well, let's put you here on earth, and we'll, we'll, we'll go out to God, to Alpha Centauri, and, you're, and that's not even close enough, but we'll go that far out because you can't comprehend that. And that's the gap between you and them and God. God's thoughts are so much higher than us that we'll never, ever bridge that gap. We get closer and closer to him. We start thinking more and more like him, but we will never get to where we are thinking like him, acting like him. Now, to the world standards, we may look pretty good. All right? You, the, you, you, we've met people. They're very loving. They're very kind. They're very forgiving. They're, you know, all these things, and they're very much all the attributes of God, and they've been walking with God for a long time. And by human standards, they look extremely good. But God says, but by the grace of God, you're still nothing but a dirty sinner that has nothing to give me. The good news is, because of the grace of God, he accepts us. And doesn't matter that we are light years apart. (laughs) And he looks here and he says, your election. 
People do not like the word election. That means God chose us. And that's a, that's a hard thing to put our mind around. Paul also talks about uh, predestination, that God has predestined our life. And before we get there, we also have to recognize that God says, whosoever will can come to him. How we match these, these two doctrines together is tough. I don't know. There's lots of people who've tried to, to uh, um, bring them up. You know, one, one group says, well, on, one, on our side of the door, God says, whoever will. And then on the other side, he says, you were selected. That is great, except for one minor problem. If God's sovereignty is, is manipulated by my choice, God is not sovereign. You understand what I just said? If God is changing because of what I choose, he's not sovereign. I'm sovereign. And I'm not sovereign. So, yes, it's whosoever will, but God has already, you know, knows how it works. We don't know. God has no problem with it. He knows all things. You know, part of it is that he, he knows our choices, but that can't be the whole thing. Because then he's not sovereign. We become sovereign, and that makes us more important. So it's not all that. It's a big part of it because it's a whosoever will. You know, and we bring this up, and it's a hard thing to understand. God is going to do what he is going to do. And it kind of, you know, and I have done this in my lifetime. As a manager, I have manipulated people, it's not really the right word, but manipulated people to do something I want them to do, and when they do it, they think it was their idea. And you know what? I don't fight with it because they're doing what I wanted done. If, and if they believe it's their idea, they take more personal responsibility for it. And I would just kind of move them around. So does God do that to us a lot? Probably. He probably moves us along a little bit so that we make the decision that he wants and we believe that we did it. Because there's... Because, and this is where it becomes an interesting thing. The free, you know, how much free will do we really have when God is in charge? You know, uh, how much choice do we have in choosing God when God's in charge and he's predestined and he's elected? You know, he has no problem in joining these very diverse opinions and saying, when you, when, when you get to heaven, I'll show you how it was all true. We read it and we go, God, I know that you say whosoever will, and I know that I made that choice. Now, did I make that choice because God put me in a place where I could not make any other choice? I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> All right? I don't really care that if he manipulated me into making that choice. I'm just glad he did. Now, this also has a flip side, because if God is the one that directs everything, then, and he doesn't direct somebody who doesn't accept him, did, you know, did he send them to hell? And that doesn't match his grace and his mercy. So we have, this is a very mind-boggling thing, and people don't like to think about it. Well, it has to make sense. God has to be in charge for him to be God. And yet he lets me make some decisions and my decisions have eternal re consequences. Just flip it around. Um, 
And there is a bit, there is a bit in there. It, he does say, he does bend his will a little bit to our, to our decisions because he's given us the right to make decisions. It does. He created Adam and Eve, knowing that Adam and Eve were going to sin, which was not what he wanted, but knowing that they were going to do that, he made a plan to redeem mankind. Yeah. All right? So there's another one of those examples. He could have stopped them from sinning and taken away their free will. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, the idea that there's evil in the world and that people can do wrong things is, is proof that God is not all-powerful. And I have a very simple answer for that. And I've asked a lot of people, I go, okay, do you really want to see God stop all evil? I'll go, yeah, yeah, it sounds good to me. I'll go, all right, I'm going to pray that God will take your free, away, free will away. You will never be able to do anything that is against his plan. Oh, no, don't do that. I go, then you don't really want to see God stop all evil. Because every time we do something wrong, the ripple effects of it have other people that are going to be hurt. Sometimes serious, sometimes not serious, but other people get hurt by every bad decision I make. And if it's a really bad decision, lots of people can get really hurt. But people really don't want God to take away their free will. What they want is you to take away all the bad, the really, really bad people's free will. But you know, if God started there, he'd have to keep going down until he took everybody's free will. I'm going to take the worst person's free will away. Oh, now there's somebody else. Now we're going to take that person. We're going to take that person. And he's going to keep going. He'd have to keep coming down until he took all free will away. How much free will we have, I don't know. It's one of those things that gets debated a lot. If God is sovereign, he's got election, he's got predestination, how much free will do I have? And I have to have free will because he said that I have free will, and it's hard. Liberty, we have liberty. Liberty is the freedom to do what I want. It really has the implication that I do what I should do. Uh, because when, you, when a military person gets liberty, they're allowed off the base, off the ship, but they're still supposed to represent the uniform and not go out and do dumb things. Many of them do. And that's when they get arrested by the military police and put into brig for, for drunken disorder or fighting or whatever because they dishonored the uniform. And there's a consequence for, their, for it. So all of this comes down into an area, and I've wrestled with it for 48 years off and on and sometimes very long. God, how much free will do we have? How much is your sovereignty absolute? Because you are sovereign. And it's hard to try to put those two together by our perspective. But then I come back to Isaiah. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And God says, don't worry about it. I know how it works. And that is very important. And Paul talks a lot about election, predestination, partially because he understood it. He's riding along on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians, and God knocks him off the horse and blinds him and says, follow me. Now, God was manipulating Saul at that point in time. Saul could have said, forget you, I'm not following you, I'll stay blind the rest of my life, and I'm not going to follow you. Now, nobody in their right mind, 
when they've been knocked off their horse and blinded, is going to say, absolutely not. I'm not following you. Okay. Uh, Moses, out in the wilderness, sees this bush burning and not being consumed. Goes, walks up to it in amazement, and God talks to him. Now, he tries to argue with God, and God wins. And he, God wins by finally getting angry with him and saying, look, you're going to listen to me. You are going to do this. You know, Moses, you may think you have free will. You may think you're not going to do this, but you are going to go deliver my people. There have been many people in, in biographies that really have come to that place where they really think that God gave them no other option. No choice. They are going to do what God told them to do. And there are times when God will be that way with us. Saying, I'm sovereign. You are going to do. But if we really don't, he'll put somebody else in the path. We're supposed to talk to this person up in the street, and we're going, nope, not going to do it. I'm going to drive right past them. I'm going to ignore them. God will bring another one of us, you know, and he'll bring another one, and he'll bring another one until somebody finally listens and is obedient. And that other people did not get the blessing they were supposed to have. God will make sure it happens in his will. And then there's consequences for disobedience. <laughs> but you know, if God really, if you're the right person and God says you are the one that's going to do this, you might break down as you're supposed to be, as you're passing that person that you'd had no intention of stopping and talk to. And that breakdown may be just a short time and you, and you start talking to this person, you get back into your car and the car starts right back up with no problem. Because God says you are talking to that person. You are doing this. You are helping this person. Yeah. And those of us who have been in a position where we didn't listen to God, you know, know that we didn't and we feel, feel bad. You know, a lot of times I don't think about who I was supposed to talk to in about th until about three hours after I'm done, you know, after I'm done with it. And God says, why didn't you talk to that person when I'm finally slowing down enough for him to talk to me? Uh, well, God, oh yeah, I guess you did really, I did kind of feel like I maybe should have done that. We need to be able to start listening for that voice. And not just, you know, so I, what I'm saying is where it is, I know we have free will. We can choose to obey God or disobey God many, most of the time. But God is sovereign. If he wants something done, he's going to make sure it gets done. And we have examples in the Bible of people that did just that. They argued with God. You know, you look at Samson. Samson was a very nasty, bad guy, and God still used him. What grace that God gave him. You know, he, he's in Delilah's house, you know, being, as she's trying to trick him, and God gives him strength to go fight the, fight the Philistines. You know, and you're going, God, how can you use somebody who's <laughs> in the wrong place, doing the wrong things, not even following you, not listening to you, not obeying you, and God still used Samson. God will use non-believers in people's lives as much as he will use believers, well, I shouldn't say as much, but sometimes he'll use non-believers as his tool when his believers won't step forward and do what they're supposed to do, and he'll make a non-believer do it. And that is a, that's a serious problem. That is a serious problem, that a non-believer doing God's work. Because God is going to have his work done. Now, he would rather use his servants freely and voluntarily. 
He will also sometimes make us do it <laughs> because he is sovereign. And so when we see these verses, we want to understand that God is God. God is going to have his way one way or the other. If he has to go through four or five of his servants to get there, he'll do it. If he has to make us do it because there's nobody else available, he'll make us do it. If he can't get any of his servants to do there's none of his servants around, he'll use the lost. If there's nobody to do it, he'll appear to somebody in a vision. In Muslim countries right now, there's hundreds if not thousands of stories of Muslims who are actively truly seeking God, getting visions of Jesus and saying, this is where you need to go to find me. You're, you're looking for me. I know you want, to find, you want to find me because you're honestly seeking. Go talk to this person. Go, go to this church. Go talk to this Christian. And he points them to the people to be, to be saved because they're truly looking. They want to know God. And God says, okay, I'm going to help you over there. He's not dragging them over there. But he says, over there is where you go. You, you really want it? Go talk to them. And when you see a vision of Jesus, you'll hopefully you obey. And they do usually. And they're going in by the droves to be saved because they're looking for him. And God says, follow me. All right, we're ending on this uh, election verse. Don't forget, though, we do have free will. <laughs> uh, and like I say, it is hard to put the two together. It really is. It's hard to put the two together and try to figure out which one is... Which one is true? So people go, do I have free will? Yes. Do, is God totally sovereign? Yes. How do you put those together? Talk to God. <laughs> and that's a big part of it. He's going to make us be obedient eventually. Every, well, every knee, that, that one is very clear. Every knee will bow. Most, some of uh, those of us who go with him for Jesus will be bowing our knee in, in happiness. Satan and the demons and, and many of the atheists are going to be forced to their knees. But they're going to bow. And that statement comes from the victorious kings of those days that would make the enemy bow. Usually just their king and their noble. They would knock their knees out from under them and put them on the ground bowing before them. Because, and that's what God is going to do at the white throne judgment. You, Satan, you will. Now notice it says that he will bow. It doesn't say he will worship. He will bow. There will be two angels on the side of him and pushing him down to the ground, and he will bow. Every person will bow. Those of us who are following him by choice will bow willingly. Oh, God, I am so thankful for everything you've done for us. Those who aren't will be forced. Now, some of them may bow just because of the majesty of God and recognizing who he is. Most are going to be forced. And there's plenty of angels to force them down. So we want to keep this in mind. When you read these verses, verses on election and predestination, don't get panicked out by it. God has not predestined some people to hell. They all make a choice. Now, he knows that they're not going to choose him, unfortunately, but he, they have all been given the choice. He says, no one will be sent to hell that has not had the opportunity to choose life. How that works, I don't know. God does, but he knows. And there is a place in there where our free will is matched into his 
into his sovereign will, and there's times when his sovereign will just says, you are going to do this. You are going to talk to this person. You are going to move here. You are going to do this. You know, there's times when he goes, okay, you want to suffer the consequences? As you said, do things the easy way or the hard way. Eventually, you're probably going to do it God's way anyway. This is the, the idea of what I keep talking about, test. God says, I'm going to teach you to love, love somebody. Oh, you failed? Okay, we're going to keep, you're going to stay in that test, and you're going to keep doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Predestination says, you're going to do it. My free will says, absolutely not. God is more stubborn than we are. <laughs> no matter how stubborn you think you are, and I've got, I know some stubborn people. I've, in my family, there are some stubborn people. They can't outstubborn God. When God sets his mind to something, it's going to happen. And no matter how much we want to try not to have it happen, if he says it's going to happen, it will happen. And he'll make sure that it happens. So don't get hung up on all of this. Understand that whosoever will can come into the gospel message and make their choice. And when you do, you were part of God's, God's selected people. If you didn't, you weren't part of his selected people. But it wasn't that he just pre-selected you before you were born to go to hell. His heart and desire is that all will come to the acceptance of God. He knows that many won't. But he is not saying, okay, well, you were born just so you can go to hell. That was the Jews' way of looking at Gentiles. Their attitude was that the, okay, we've got our, we've got our million Jews and the rest of the world was born to go to hell. Yeah, what an evil God they had to, in, their, in their, uh, their mindset. So we want to know that God loves us and will accept us. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, if there's anybody listening to this this week that doesn't know you, we ask that they will turn their hearts over to you. They will recognize they're a sinner and admit that they deserve punishment and accept the gift that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for their sins so that he can come in and dwell with them in, in, in power and strength and give them the power to live a righteous, holy life. And we just thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.